Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. Today, I have three guests with me. They're all co-authors of a great book, Decisions Over Decimals, which we will get into. I'm going to do some quick introductions, then we're going to get right into it. So Chris, Oded, and Paul with me today. Chris brings deep frontline experience for having worked 25 plus years with some of the best in business at American Express and Microsoft. His ability to connect insight to strategy in a coherent and actionable way has won him global recognition as a leader in his field, as well as a plethora of industry awards. Odette is the Vice Dean for Research and the Arthur J. Sandberg Professor of Business at Columbia Business School. And then I've got Paul, who's the head of global strategic alliances at Google, He's a leader in using technology and innovation to create and develop growth strategies for businesses. He has launched new high-growth businesses working in over 30 countries and has been an industry mentor in the NSF i TM program, which I'm sure we'll get into. And he is the two-time author of Drinking from the Fire Hose, as well as the co-author of the current book. And he is co-faculty director, and an adjunct professor at Columbia. So thank you all for coming. I always ask the same question, which is, what motivated you to do this? Because it's a ton of work, and it is a often a labor of love. So what was the genesis and the impetus behind writing this book? Yeah, I'll kick off. First of all, Brian, thank you for inviting us and, and having us on. We've been teaching decision science for eight years at, at Columbia. And When you think around decision-making and becoming effective at decision-making, it's pervasive, both your personal and professional life. If you could become better at decision-making, 
it will have a notable impact across all your interactions. As we've been teaching it, we get a lot of questions outside the classroom, help me become a better decision making. And that was really the catalyst to write this book. And we're currently in the second printing right now. So clearly there's interest and there's a lot of appetite to improve decision making. Yeah, just maybe add to it that, that as we've been, you know, teaching this uh, course, but also the three of us are in the front lines of business in different businesses over the years. We noticed uh, a couple of myths that, that that kind of encourage us to write the, the book. Um, the first myth is that uh, people are afraid of using data because they believe that they need to be uh, top of the class in math in order to do it. They need to be Excel with in order to make decisions with data. And the way we think about it, there are good news and bad news about it. The bad news is you don't get to decide whether you make decisions with data. It's reality. We all need to uh, to make these decisions with data. The good news is you don't need to be top of class in math in order to make these decisions. There are skills needed, not math. Math is not one of them. We call this set of skills quantitative intuition, which we'll dive into later. But um, being top of a class in math is not the skill needed. The second is that after we've seen there the revolution, if you will, of big data, the, the, the hype first and then the reality that, yes, we have much more data, but it's not a crystal ball. That, that big data would not lead to what we call the certainty myth, that finally decisions will be certain. And again, that's enticed us to take a, a, another step at saying, then how do we deal with making uh, decisions under uncertainty in a world in which we have a lot of data, but not always the right data and definitely not a uh, perfect data. But actually, my favorite response to why we wrote the book actually comes from Paul, uh, the one-liner of, of why we wrote the book. Uh, we're, we're tired of bad meetings. Think about all the wasted time in corporate America, large and small, and the value destruction of just meetings that drone on, they're not effective. And I just pray one day that we're all better at meetings and uh, I will personally feel better. I think we all will if we're more efficient and effective and get more out of all the effort we put in. Yeah, I think especially after COVID and Zoom fatigue and meetings about meetings, I'm sure everybody listening would echo that. You all reference big data, which we've had folks on the show who are talking about using it from an investment perspective, right? Un untraditional data points and data sets that they're able to scrape nowadays. It seems to me that the executives I know working at these large organizations are suffering from decision fatigue around just the data sets that they're in front of every day. Could you maybe talk about how we're it's almost more of a curation issue at this point and how your book addresses how to manage through just this avalanche of data that we're all presented with on a, seems like a hour by hour basis. Yeah. The, the, the ironic thing is that whether you have a lot of data or whether you don't have a lot of data, the outcome is the same. You need to pay careful attention to what is the problem you're trying to solve, to hone in on the questions that you're trying to address. Because if you don't have a lot of data, then you don't have the luxury of looking everywhere, right? Because it will take a lot of effort to collect the data. If you're maybe more in, in the, indeed as the investors in this podcast have tons of data, then really you need to focus on what it is that you need because otherwise you're drinking straight from the fire hoses. My uh, two colleagues here have written uh, in a previous book uh, about 
So either way, you need to define the problem very well. And we talk about several techniques of how to do it. Chris, um, you want to describe the, the the techniques for it? Yeah. The one uh, technique that we actually talk about is called IWIC. I wish I knew. And the irony is, as the cliche goes, what gets measured gets done. Um, and as you reference, Brian, everything seems to be measured today, and especially in, in investing. There's a tremendous amount of measurement and, and data flowing, yet it feels like less and less is, is getting done and there's more swirl. So when we talk about IWIC or I wish I knew, it is a technique to both discover the information you need to frame your problem and to define the essential question. And that is a big statement from a simple four word technique, I wish I knew. And we dedicate a whole chapter in the book to I Wish I Knew. And we actually spend a good part of our program at Columbia discussing IWIC. And that's the shorthand name for IWIC. And what it does is it enables you, without having to go to math camp, to engage in the data in a way that, and, and at any level, with various stakeholders, with your clients, to engage in data in a way that is not about the data, is not about the numbers or confidence intervals or statistical probabilities or standard distribution. It's really around how do I make a better decision? How do I, with all this data in front of me, really understand the essential information I need? And then more importantly, how do I achieve the outcome that I'm looking to achieve in the fastest way possible? I wish I knew is one technique among others that we actually discuss. And just building on something Odette said earlier, we all work on the front lines. I worked at Microsoft and American Express, whether it's Google or Amex or, or IBM. We've all have some startups in that, in that venture uh, experience. Regardless of the size of, of organization, this IWIC technique is something that is very powerful and is something that will enable people to almost think of it as a regulator on that fire hose of information. You're able to dial this in, in a way that will help you regulate that information flow. And so would that be in contrast to what would be considered traditional decision-making in corporate world versus how you all are thinking about it moving forward using your frameworks and techniques? Yes, I mean, one of the ways in, in which is contradictory, it's, in fact, is walking backwards. One of the approaches we talk about is walking backwards. We generally walk forward. The backward approach to problem-solving, to hone in on the issue is not to start with the data, not even to start with the problem. Start with what is the decision we're trying to solve? For example, am I trying to decide between two in investment opportunities? Then comes the IWICs. Ask yourself, what is it that I wish I knew in order to be able to make that decision between these two alternatives or three alternatives or whatever the, the decision at hand? And then go and focus your data collection only on these predefined pieces of information, iWeeks, that would allow you to make the decision. So to some extent, it, it is a almost decision-driven data analysis as opposed to data-driven decision-making. We're starting from the decision at hand. What is it that we are trying to, to solve for? Yeah, said another way, the decisions out there are not quite random, but they're often no better than a coin toss. Despite what people seem to think they're doing on analysis, it's very much an illusion because we're falling into the same routines with analysis. So 
what we talk about starts with solid framing up front, which is lacking. We see that all the time. So with the right kind of framing, you can then do the correct discovery and then deliver the right decision. But it's that whole sequence and not simply going out there and making a choice based on the first thing you see. But at the, at the same time, your approach doesn't necessarily denude the use of intuition, right? That's part of this balancing that goes into these decision-making techniques that you propose, correct? Yeah, absolutely. A- absolutely. We're, we talk throughout the book, throughout the course that we teach in any of our conversations, we talk about that exact balance. So any good decision-maker is not sitting there saying, I need a 90% confidence interval on the data. That Those words are never said. Those words are impractical, right? So a good decision maker has what we hear often, a real sense of the business. And that is their intuition speaking. That is the business acumen accumulated over time. But it is also the sense of where to look at the data and when to look at the data and which data to look at. So collectively, that's a holistic view, and the top leaders do that. And what we're trying to do is teach more people to behave that way and to really embrace that. One of the places where intuition comes in, and when you see a a complex financial model, right, when you go and evaluate an investment opportunity, when I need someone to to evaluate, and what I do for a living is I build some of these models, uh, when I need someone to evaluate my model, my very complex machine learning model with, with all of the um, fancy machine learning or, or econometrics that goes into it, I don't go to my econometrics or, or statistician friend. I actually go to, to, to people in the front line of that business to say, do these numbers make sense, right? Because, and, and, and I often get much better response from there saying, look, I don't know what you've done there because it's way above my head, the, the math there. But I can tell you that this number is absolutely wrong, right? And, and that's the intuition that we are talking about. To interrogate data, that's why we are saying you don't need to be math bees. You need to have context. You need to understand the business. And that's the type of intuition that leaders often have. And actually, data analysts, those who are deep into the weeds of this financial model or another financial model, often lack. They don't have the, the, the context to interrogate data from an intuitive perspective, if you will. Yeah, it's interesting insight. But the the big data scientist that I referenced earlier, he was a consultant to hedge funds, right? And we talked a lot about how the data that is in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal that goes into GDP or CPI is often just wrong. And we, we just take it for granted that it's correct. But this really goes hand in hand with your concept of being a fierce interrogator, which I think is a really cool term. So how does that interplay with the ability of really successful people to make these decisions in their businesses? Yeah. So the fierce interrogator, how often have we been in meetings or we're on point to, to present in the meeting? We'll prepare the presentation for weeks and we'll crunch all the numbers. And you go into that meeting and within five minutes, it's usually the senior person, they'll ask you a question And it all just seems so insightful and so obvious. And how is that person who is, for the first time, seeing your analysis, how has she become that fierce interrogator? And there's two things. One, Oded just mentioned it, context. 
we talk about putting data in context all the time. And that is a, a big word, and we actually have defined it. So when you look at any financial model, you look at any analysis, context is really made up. It's a three-legged stool. Look at the absolute information, the absolute number. Look at the change in that number over time. And look at it relative to some number or norm or benchmark. And often when that person is looking at that data for the first time, they're doing that in their head. Does this absolute number matter? Does it, has it changed over time? And what is it relative to some market or some competitor? And they will ask that question and they will seemingly feel and be that fierce interrogator. That's the first thing. Think about context. The other thing that we talk about becoming a fierce interrogator is the smartest person in the room doesn't have the answer. They ask questions and they ask very powerful pointed questions. And it is, it is false to think you need to go into that room and have the answer and you are going to wind up really making your recommendation be accepted. The fierce interrogator is actually able to think critically and then they are bold enough to say, I don't know, help me understand and ask questions about cause and effect, about context and about relative to some outcome or time or risk that they want, that they are aware of. That makes a fierce interrogator, not taking a, a number to the fifth decimal point or running the structural equation modeling model or doing a turf analysis. That's not fierce data interrogation. That's rigorous data science. That's different than decision-making. Yeah, maybe. And maybe add to it that one, one technique, one actually very deceptively simple way to interrogate data is ask one sentence. What surprised you? Uh, looking for these surprises is a great way to identify uh, patterns in data. Um, and if you think about the word surprise, right, the word surprise is by definition, this combination that we, that we talked about before between quantitative and intuition, information and intuition, because the surprise is what happens when incoming information doesn't match your intuition. And as we, as I'm looking at, at data, what I often do is I'm asking myself, I'm asking the analyst, tell me one or two things that surprised you. And this one single question goes straight to the heart of the, of the issue because what would happen is there are often two outcomes of the question, what surprised you? Either you're going to find something super interesting or you're going to find a mistake in the analysis because you know why it's not surprising. It was surprising to someone else or the other way around. It's a great way to interrogate data in a fairly easy way. And back to Paul's point of having better meetings, if we have meetings on surprises as opposed to on the, the obvious We'll have way fewer meetings and much more useful and interesting meetings. I'd like to go back to something you said, Brian, about the data leader, data scientist, perhaps it was, that was commenting on what's in the paper. Well, what's in the paper is really a dashboard, and dashboards look backwards. And what people need to do is rather than dwelling in the past and looking over their shoulder, looking backwards at what data may be telling you about the past, it's using the techniques that Oded and Chris just talked about to 
be intentional looking forwards, saying, where is this going? What is it that I wish I knew to get to the future state and not revalidate what's already published, revalidate what's already in the paper and everyone knows? How do I surface that surprise that will move my company forward, will give us an advantage rather than reverting to the mean of everybody doing the same thing that the the stock index says. Well, you're going to get an average result if you're reverting to the mean and looking backwards. It's a different mindset. Yeah. And along those lines, this is a good segue. I'm curious how this has been received within the business school academic community, because you are going against, I didn't go to business school, but a lot of friends obviously did. It seems like you're going against a lot of dogma that's been set up over the last 10 or 20 years. What's it been like in the classroom and what's it been like within academic circles? We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to Excelsior. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. GP.com slash download to learn more. Well, I'll jump in first, and and then I think Oded, as the vice dean, probably has a lot to say. But you're, you're on this call. You've got two engineers, two data scientists. We love the data. Like we like wallowing in the data. It's just a question of where we focus and how we get to focus better. And I'll tell you that we've heard time and again from the students that this field, the class when they take it uh, in the exec MBA, they come back and they say, oh, this is the perfect capstone because it pulls everything together. Now I know why I took that statistics class and how to apply it appropriately. Now I know why I took any number of other classes and coalesce all of that information together. We didn't design this as a capstone class, but it seems to have evolved into that position within the academic community. And Oded, how does it, what's, what else is said in the hallowed halls? Yeah, I think actually in the academic community has been also accepted very well because it actually takes something that we often do in the academic world. Think about hypothesis testing and then working backwards from a hypothesis towards let's interrogate that hypothesis and let's design exactly what we need to answer that question. It's something we are very used to in the academic world. And, and because of the, uh, 
the feeling of I got to jump straight into solution mode. I got to jump straight into the data, the time pressure within the, the business world that people often skip these important stages and jump straight into, into uh, analyzing data, something that maybe happens less actually in, in, in the academic world. Uh, so this has been very well received from that perspective of, yeah, there is no reason uh, businesses shouldn't be operating in a, in a similar way and, and spending some time with the problem, right? Einstein said that it's not that I'm that smart, I'm actually spending more time with the problem. Businesses often are, are reluctant to do it because it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like spending time with the problem is work. It's good to hear because, you know, on its face, I think it could be, you know, potentially controversial, especially within some of the circles that you all operate in. I'm, I'm curious to touch on, we haven't really gotten, I think you all have referenced it, but would like to get a little bit deeper on the QI. Paul, I know this is close to your heart. There's a lot of talk these days about people who have EQ, right? That's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Would love to have you maybe define the term that you all have, I don't know, invented, but definitely fleshed out within this book. Well, it is all three of us that came to this together. So I think it's close to all three of our hearts. Effectively, quantitative intuition is the sequence that we've described, right? So it is framing the problem up front, and doing the contextual analysis, which we've talked about that for the first 20 minutes here. How do you do that analysis? But before you do that, you have to take the step up front to do that framing and understand what it is that we really want to tackle. And then the third part of it is really understand how to communicate that outwards because decision-making is a team sport. So if one person says, ah, I've got it, and no one else believes you, no one else heard it, then you haven't really accomplished anything. So building the consensus around that, getting the consent of the organization, bringing everyone along is a critical portion of this. So it's that upfront discovery, the contextual analysis, and then the delivery of that message with now constituents that support it all. That, in effect, is quantitative intuition. And why quantitative intuition? Because it is, as we said before, the blend of really embracing that data, but equally embracing your intuition, that business acumen that leaders have, and they don't have to be technical to have that, bringing those two together. And since it's a team sport, it's people from different walks should be teaming up to do these things. Yeah, I mean, this term, quantitative intuition, it sounds almost like an oxymoron, right? Quantitative and intuition, left brain, right brain, there are people who are good in the data, people who have really good gut, right? By no means we mean you should just trust your gut, right? And you should be just working on intuition. As Paul mentioned, we have two engineers, two data scientists in the team of three. We are definitely very much both of our feet in the data, so we by no means eliminate the data, but uh, really the way we should probably think about it is not trust your gut, but trust your doubt. When you're doubting the data, you need to interrogate further. You need to uh, understand where are the issues. And then again, eventually moving towards synthesis, towards uh, delivering that information. So uh, we've co- talked a lot about theoretical and in the classroom. Are there case studies or real world examples or maybe some tools that you use to actually teach this? 
to the classroom to future business leaders about how this works in reality? Yeah, I'll kick off. So I think, first of all, some of the techniques we teach seem deceptively simple. For example, the one question, what surprised you? And I just invite Brian, yourself, and and everyone listening to to this podcast to just try to apply that in, in various settings, in various meetings. When you see data or when you come to a presentation, ask what surprised you and see if that changes the dialogue. So what's it, it, it will open up the aperture. So the first technique, what surprised you, the way we teach it is we actually ask people in their next meetings, series of meetings, to, to say what surprised you and see if that is a different stream of information or engagement that they get from their clients or stakeholders, number one. Um, I'll just give you a very quick case study using that. When I was at Microsoft, I led a global project, 47 markets, tens of thousands of customers. I surveyed them on a quarterly basis, and I would discuss and share these results. And in one of these meetings, the GM of the global sales force, he said at the end, he's like, is there something you didn't understand in, in the data, something that doesn't make sense? And being the diligent data scientist that I was, of course, I had a 110-page deck, and eight-point font does exist. And when I had every number, every data there, we could segment the data nine, nine different ways, by audience, by market, by tenure, by product line. And in the U.S., in I believe it was 12 out of the 42 uh, U.S. districts, they just didn't follow the pattern. And they weren't in a specific region. They were distributed. So I had one or two here in Northern California and one in the Southwest and three in the Northeast. And they just it didn't follow the, the pattern. They were way outside what the normal change should be. So when he gave me permission to say to the data scientist, tell me what didn't make sense, anything unexpected, I went and I looked at these 12 markets and I highlighted them. And as I read off that list, his chief of staff started making check marks. And they aligned exactly with where they did a pilot program, although they didn't tell anyone, around investing in extra services and support. And if he did not ask that question and create that safe learning environment to say, please help me understand, is there anything you didn't understand, essentially what surprised you, that th- those markets never would have been discussed. I never would show the results of his pilot. As a result of asking that and as a result of that dialogue that we had, he was able to validate his pilot. He invested in this program, and it was the catalyst to launch this program on a global basis in all 47 markets around the world. So when we talk about a specific case or we talk about a specific tool or technique to apply quantitative intuition, simply asking and starting out with what surprised you is one tool. And Paul has a great example about a waterfall versus how do you start to actually engage in our technique and framework. Paul, would you like to share? Yeah, I I think just conscious of time here that everything that we've talked about it's not a waterfall. We're all trained 
to follow a waterfall technique because there's a logical progression. There's no logical progression in decision-making in the real world. Something comes at you from a different angle. It more often feels like jazz than a waterfall. So there's a theme and that's your company, but a new situation comes in. And so you, you go and address that and then come back to the theme. That's just the way a jazz ensemble works. So we see a lot of examples like that. And the fact is when people and their organizations are going down a certain path, they don't deal well with that disruption. They don't deal well with that sudden change and then have the ability to say, well, does this drive a course correction to our strategy or do we revert back and incorporate in some new knowledge or do we treat that change as an outlier? And that's fine. But even the ability to consider that new piece of information the right way is most often disruptive because that's not often how organizations are built. They're built to drive through objectives and key results. You start here. It's like a moon launch. You start here. You have to launch here and you look at results at the end. That's not the world we live in anymore. Yeah, and just to add to the more balance of the real world and, and academics, right? Even though we've been teaching this for quite a few years at, at Columbia, one of the things we very much value at Columbia Business School, particularly being in, in New York City, is this bridge between academia and practice. And indeed, this course is a culmination of it, right? I'm a professor at Columbia Business School, Chris and Paul coming from the front lines of business. I'm actually splitting my, my own time also between Columbia and Amazon. So a lot of what we talk about, in fact, almost everything we talk about is actually first was fit in from the world of practice, from the front lines into the classroom and then back into the front lines, right? Very much a practical type of approach that actually originated from our observations more in the front lines of business. Yeah, it's this is a maybe a, a juvenile <laughs> interpretation or representation, but do you know the game High Low Buffalo? He plays so with your kids, with my I've got seven year old, ten year old boys. When we're at dinner, we have family dinner, we try to get them to talk. It's like pulling teeth, right? So we play high low buffalo, which is a game that a lot of people play at school. Best part of your day, worst part of your day, and then a surprising part of your day. And it's always fascinating because like the best the highs and lows are pretty predictable, right? Like I got into trouble at school or I had a great time playing sports. But the Buffalo, like the surprising thing is always the most engaging. It gets the best conversation going and it really does make you think a lot more. I don't see why it wouldn't apply within the business realm as well. So I'll turn it back on you all. What was the surprising part about maybe the book launch or the reception or how it's played out in practice, both in academia or across Maybe some of your students have implemented it. Any surprises that you've seen? Well, first off, it sounds like your 10-year-olds should come and guest lecture at the class. <laughs> so if you want to know about Pokemon and FIFA, for sure. There you go. I think what's surprised us is the, in many cases, the immediate results. We've had students... And these are business professionals who are taking time out for an exec MBA at Columbia. So they're out there in the real world. And we've had some of them literally come back 
on day two and say, I tried that technique and it completely changed what we're doing. It's completely changed the strategy. It's completely changed how the team even communicated with each other in the moment, in that meeting last night. And so we're taking a very different direction with the project. And that's not one anecdote. That happens over and over again. Yeah, well, that's terrific to hear. We've gotten really deep into a lot of this. If there's maybe a a takeaway or one thing that you want the listeners to understand about what the messaging you're trying to get across could be a technique, it could be this surprise question, how would you encapsulate it for the listener if they're talking about this book to a friend at a cocktail party and they say, I just heard this really interesting podcast or read this interesting book that was compelling? What would you want that kind of one or two sentences to be? To me, it would be interrogative, ask questions, spend time with questions, appreciate the questions. As Chris mentioned before, the smartest person in the room is not the one with the answer, pick me, pick me, but actually the person who asks really good questions Exercise this muscle uh, and to ask questions, spend time, particularly at the start of, of any of these projects with asking the questions, but also as you, as the data comes in, keep asking questions of the data as opposed to looking straight to the answers, as opposed to getting into straight into solution mode. Yeah. And I'll, one thing I would say is the takeaway is the perfect decision does not exist. And hopefully after they listen to this podcast or read the book, there should be some freedom that they feel like let's not interrogate the data and, and ask for a part two and part three and part four of the meeting and bring one more spreadsheet. I hope that they feel like there is freedom to, if anyone does any selling listening to the podcast, we talk about tacking. You make micro movements to get to your destination. If you sell, you can't sell directly into the wind. It's similar to decision-making. There should be some freedom of, you know what? Let me not digest all the information or data. Let me just take the information I have. And even though it may be incomplete, let me make a decision and then and adjust. And leaving this podcast, they almost feel that sense of freedom. And we gave them specific techniques to try to do that, whether it's iWake or what surprised you or context in that context triangle. Those are three powerful techniques they could easily start to to apply and it's very pragmatic. I'd add that because of Ted Lasso, I think a lot of people got familiar with the Walt Whitman quote, be curious, not judgmental. And that's great, but how are you curious? And we've seen that people need to learn how to be curious. And what comes naturally to a child, like you said, the, the 10-year-olds, right? What comes naturally to a child is often something that in the business world, we don't feel we've got permission to do, or we forget how to be curious and how to have that conversation in context, how to balance things like time, risk, and trust in a decision. And so what we're putting out there into the world is is an approach to be curious and an encouragement to do so. Love it. Powerful. Thank you all for joining us today. If we do a a call out, I know the book's available on Amazon, but people are curious to learn more about the book, your work, Decisions Over Decimal. You all do speak engagements as well. What's the best place for them to go? They can go to dodthebook.com. 
So again, dodthebook.com, and there's information about us, some some interesting links there, and an ability to reach out and, and see where we've engaged previously as well. Thank you all again for joining. This has been great. For our listeners, please do leave us a review, comments, let us know your favorite part of the conversation. A question we ask people to come on the show, and we'll do this in the order that I see you all in my screen, which is Paul, Chris, and Oded. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? Wow, I'm going to get emotional. I, I do try and take a quiet moment in the morning. Yeah, I just try and take a quiet moment in the morning to, to get reset. I find that quiet moment in, believe it or not, in making coffee. Making coffee to me is, is just not, it, it, it's a ritual for me, actually. When I do a pour over every morning, when, when I make that, and everything from measuring the beans, data scientists and me, all the way through to actually making the, the actual coffee and, and creating that cup, that to me is, is my moment to get centered. For me, is I have an 18-minute walk from home to school, exactly 18 minutes, and no traffic on the walk. Um, and I, every morning I use this to call to my 89-year-old mother. And that's usually my daily ritual of spending 18 minutes with her from the minute I leave home until usually I get to the elevator and the call gets uh, disconnected in the office. That's my moment to get ready for the day. Thank you for sharing. It's always an interesting answer from everybody. So appreciate you being open to that. Thank you again for coming on. Best of luck with the book and all the work. Keep it going, and we look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode.